It's the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast with your hosts, Stan Dryav and Nick Bracha. Welcome to the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast. This is Stan Dryav and the bitter MMA fan to my Jake Paul, Nick Braccia. Nick, it's good to be on with you, buddy. How are you? And with you, Stan. I'm delightful. Delightful. Wow, that is a new word, one that you haven't used especially to describe yourself. Uh, it's one that I would use to describe you, for the record. Oh, thank you. Uh, I love it, Nick. So, yeah, man, we missed a couple of weeks. I was actually pretty under the weather for a, a little bit there. wasn't able to do any research for the last card, but... We can quickly talk a little bit about what happened over the last couple of weeks, about a couple of the more important fights. Uh, more importantly, we're going to get into this upcoming card where we have Rosenstrike going up against Sakai in the main event of a card with some with some decent things to offer. There's not a whole lot of names on this one, but I think it's worth watching. Uh, in the meantime, though, Nick, we do, I think, have to get into a little bit this Jake Paul Tyron Woodley matchup, man. What are your thoughts on this one? Not good, man. Not good. It's, I, it's a high-risk, high-reward for Jake Paul, but it's very calculated. He's going to be able to do what he wasn't able to do with Ben Askren. Ben Askren didn't really care that much. He wanted, to, he wanted to win, I think, and he was excited about the payday. But Ben Askren is not... He's 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 pretty unflappable guy. He rolls with stuff. He's got his... It sounds like his family is really tight, means everything to him. I think a week out from that fight, he probably wasn't thinking about it that much. T. Wood knows what's on the line for him here. His, he kind of went out on his shield against Luque, but the last two years, I mean, basically ever since uh, his fight with Darren Till, which was years ago, uh, I believe the Usman fight was after that. Yep. It's, been, it's been an ugly ride for him, and so much of it was psychological. Um, the inability to pull the trigger... Uh, fe- just fear, I think, uh, to, pr- to press the action, uh, potentially lack of be- self-belief or belief and trust in his skills. And he did trust in them against Luke A. And, you know, he got, no- he got knocked silly, but, he, um, but, he, but it's like, so what? You know, he still, he still did damage. He still, looked, he still looked and felt like a fighter. But my point is, He's a, he seems to be a psychologically vulnerable guy. And he's going into a situation where he has everything to lose and a little bit to gain. But I think I really, really worry that Jake Paul is going to be at a major psychological advantage and a size advantage uh, going into this fight. And if Woodley doesn't, you know, look like start throwing jabs and like, because he's never really, even with his striking, he never fought like a boxer. He felt like a guy who was able to take advantage of the fact that you knew a shot, a strong, powerful shot might be coming, wrestling shot, I mean, and was able to change, you know, uh, um, was able to bluff that and throw like big, powerful right hands with a four ounce glove. I don't know how that's going to translate to boxing, even at the amateur, even at the amateur level. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I'd call this amateur. I, I do think Jake Paul is extremely choosy with his matchups. He chose in his last matchup, Ben Askren, a guy who has absolutely no hands, absolutely no danger in the striking realm. The fight prior to that, he chose a basketball player. I mean, look, he's a few fights into his career. It does make sense. He's making a boatload of money. 
based on the idea that people want to see him, whether it's win or lose, people are interested in him. The MMA world hates him. The boxing world hates him. But he's selling over, presumably, at least according to claims by Triller and himself, over a million pay-per-views, right? So there is value to that. And you're right. Tyron Woodley is just as small of a guy as is Ben Askren. Obviously, he's a lot more athletic. Obviously, he has power in his hands. But is he willing to use it? Will he throw as many punches in the first minute or so uh, as did Ben Askren? I'm not so sure. And obviously, like you said, we saw that matchup with Luke where he actually let everything go. It's one or the other. I I think the Luke game plan would work a lot better for Tyron Woodley. I think if you can tag him early, that would work well. But again, Tyron Woodley's a much smaller man here. I don't think that Jake Paul can make 170 pounds. Jake Paul's being very choosy with his matchups, and he's slowly leveling up with each one. But still choosing matchups that should, on paper, favor him. He's going to be the bigger guy. He's going to be the more aggressive guy on paper. I can see the chance uh, that Jake Paul pushes Tyron Woodley up against the ropes and walks right into a right hand. It's possible, but Woodley's a much smaller man again. I'm not sure it's that simple. Um, I think there's a reason that Jake Paul chose this matchup. I think his handlers know what they're doing. And you're right, Tyron Woodley will not be in a good mental state going into this matchup. Right, he he's not gonna he's not as smart as is Ben Askren. He's not as good of a trash talker as is Ben Askren. So he's not gonna be able to handle Jake Paul in the same ways that Ben Askren did. Um, I I particularly am offended when Tyron Woodley decides, for the sake of his own promotion, for the sake of his own wealth, to put like the Black Lives Matter movement onto his back when he fights Kobe Covington. Made that into a BLM versus MAGA matchup, and naturally Tyron Woodley didn't do a damn thing and lost and got embarrassed. And now he's putting the MMA world on his back. At least this time he's got some serious financial gain to to get from it. Um, and he's fought, facing off with this guy who's arguably in the boxing world, but the boxing world hates him too. Like Again, deciding to be a representative of a movement that doesn't really want him to represent them. Um, listen, Tyron Woodley's going to get the biggest payday of his career. That should be an embarrassment to the UFC, the fact that a multi-time UFC champion is going into the twilight of his career and about to make way more money going up against the 3-0 boxer. It's absolutely embarrassing that that is the case, but this is the MMA world that we live in, Nick, and this is what it's, we have to endure. <clears throat> there's a lot of things going on in this name. It's, yes, the fighter sh- the, I do believe that the fighter should be paid more and the rev share should be different. At the same time, when you're essentially doing Kimbo Slice-style fights or bum fights or just pure spectacle frat boy marketing, like w- which is what... Uh, the Paul, kind of the Paul brothers scene and 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 Triller uh, are about. It's just a much more massive audience. There's no nuance. They're got, this is pure spectacle, like carny shit. So that's why it's going to even. My point is, even if more money from Endeavor from the UFC got into the pockets of fighters, th- I believe that events like this where you're tapping into the YouTube world and, and massive like mainstream moron, like idiocracy culture is always going to outgross. It doesn't, it doesn't work when Oscar De La Hoya puts Chuck against Tito because right. nobody, nobody gives a shit because fight because MMA fight fans are still much, much smaller than the two or three generations of people uh, you know, millennials, zennials, alphas, for whom like the Paul brothers are a real thing. So it's I mean, look, it's the, a little apple. It's a little apples uh, and oranges in my 
opinion there. Not to say that there isn't problems with the way that the UFC pays people, and I get that that's insult to injury. I just I just don't think it's it can it's you know that equitable the comparison. If the UFC paid Tyron Woodley between five and ten million per fight, like he probably should have been paid for several fights now, Tyron Woodley wouldn't need this payday badly, or he would be less likely to need this payday badly, right? There are rumors about Tyron what are you Woodley. what are you basing what are you basing what Tyron Woodley should be paid on? Like, as where's a, that number a, coming from? As a world champion who's headlined multiple pay-per-views, who, I mean, in the boxing world, he would have made way more money per fight. But yeah, in, but boxing matches, back, boxing matches have way, way higher buy rates. No, they don't, Nick. Not necessarily. The major Championship boxing match? Yeah. Can you name so, me four champions of boxing who you've watched the pay-per-views of? Like they're, they're currently participating or ever? Currently participating. Um, not currently. I used to, I used during the, the heyday of the, of the Mosley Trinidad Vargas, like De, De La Hoya period, lo, lots of them, but um, the, the boxing matches that generate, no. that generate real revenue now are the Mayweather, uh, the Mayweather clown shows, the Paul clown shows and the, uh, obviously the, the elite, uh, boxing of, um, Fear, Fury, jo- I mean, well, Alvarez also. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought yeah, that there, Deontay Wilder also, Fury made a, made a lot of money. Y- yes, uh, but but my point is that boxing as a sport does not generate more money than the UFC, as far as I can tell. But the fighters get paid significantly. Not, not as a sport. It's complete. It's completely structured differently, though. Yes, but, but my my point again. My point back to Woodley was that Woodley's been getting paid shit by the UFC. Therefore, he has to put himself in this position to get embarrassed and. For the sake of this payday, I understand. I just want what I'd love to know is the breakdown of what the like what reasonably based on the money that the revenue that the UFC drives, what what does what does fair money look like, and how does that compare? Um, how does that how does that compare uh, across other sports? Well, we we actually we actually did a breakdown of this a while ago, Nick, where we did an episode uh, you and I where we focused on it. I did a lot of research for it, and <laughs> it did? seems like okay. <laughs> it seems like most of the sports are right around fifty percent uh, between between the actual players slash fighters and and the promotion. Uh, the NBA, for example, with their basketball players, split it about fifty fifty, right? Whereas the UFC fighters get paid anywhere from ten to uh, certainly under twenty percent of revenue. So, I mean, it's minuscule, right? Uh, John Jones has never made anywhere close to Deontay Wilder money. Is Deontay Wilder much more famous than John Jones? I don't know that he is. Does he generate without a big name across from him? Does he generate a lot more pay-per-views? Not really. So, again, we, we just have this weird structure where MMA fighters have to beg for 50 or 75K on the broadcast where you have Charles Oliveira, who's a UFC champion, talking about how, yeah, I've won, I've won like six bonuses, but... Out of that fifty thousand dollar bonus, I end up getting like fifteen or twenty grand after taxes, after yeah, paying my managers, that. after paying my coaches, right? So there's ser- something seriously wrong with this, especially when the UFC and obviously we don't have to go very deep into this, but especially when the UFC takes away the fighters' right to generate their own sponsorship money and decides they're going to pay them between like five and thirty grand, depending on your level of of whatever, um, because whether it be Venom or Reebok gives the UFC boats loads of money in order to be the uh, kind of brand for the sport. Uh, again, th- this all goes back to the UFC's pay structure. Um, look, the bottom line is about Jake Paul. It's a freak show. 
It's silly, but you and I have never dedicated, uh, you know, 15 minutes of our podcast to Kimbo Slice. And maybe we would have if we had recorded back when he was regularly competing. Oh, we, de- we definitely would have, no doubt. Maybe, maybe but uh, bottom line is that everybody's talking about him, Nick. And whatever he's doing is working. And he doesn't have, he's not as horrible at this as is Colby Covington, where he just sounds like a complete low IQ idiot when he speaks. Uh, Jake Paul is generating money. He's generating interest. He's got the boxing, the MMA world, and the YouTube world at his beck and call. And I got to give him He's a self-made celebrity. He, for he better really or worse, he's a, he's, a, he's a self-made celebrity. I happen to think that the culture he comes from, that he's a complete fucking moron. But, yeah, you know. but, but there's a genius to it, Nick, because you and I probably will never accomplish anything close to the kind of attention, uh, the kind of money that he's generating w- with this. And... Maybe we have higher IQs. Maybe that's arguable, but man, like the guy's yeah, extremely. I, you know, effective. I mean, you know, let's let's remember Hitler resonated with a lot of people. <laughs> yes, <laughs> evil, evil, but so. there there is a genius to that evil. Unfortunately, right? Like if if Hitler was a complete nincompoop, he would arguably not have been able to accomplish as much evil as he was able to accomplish. As as terrible as this yeah. sounds, there, there it's, is some, it's, there is it's, a lot of its it. timing, luck, its confluence of forces. But yeah, there. The, you know there is there's a, a large there's a large audience of young morons who yeah. feel like the Paul brothers represent something good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Either that, or there's a large audience of people that want to see him lose, like like you and I would not mind seeing him lose to Tyron Woodley, for example. Um, well, I'm still I, I not going to pay of, for it. Yeah, oh I yeah, won't, I can't. L- l- listen, I, I I'm right there with you. I wouldn't put money into Jake Paul's pocket just like I I would uh, avoid putting money into the UFC's coffers every chance I get. Uh, but let's quickly talk about what's been happening over the last couple of weeks, Nick. Uh, let's quickly touch on since we didn't get a chance to on this podcast the UFC 262 main event. Charles Oliveira versus Michael Chandler. Uh, I mean, this went, you know, this this ended as you and I think expected. Both you and I thought that Charles Oliveira was going to do well in this matchup. Obviously, there was a hairy moment there in the first round. Uh, Charles Oliveira started the matchup basically with calf kicks. Uh, he got tagged with the left hook by Michael Chandler. And what's funny is as he got tagged with that left hook, Oliveira just barely missed that check left hook that he ended up finishing Michael Chandler with later in the bout. Um but Oliveira, as soon as he got tagged, he went for that takedown. He took Michael Chandler's back. Chandler was able to reverse eventually, got top position. And with about two minutes left in the round, maybe a minute and a half, Chandler tagged him. Oliveira was on all fours, constantly moving, right, to, to prevent the referee from stopping the fight. Ended up on his back with Chandler in his guard. Argument to be made that Chandler probably should have gotten up and, and uh, tried to land that left hook or overhand right again. But he didn't. He stayed in top position, hoping to pull off the Paul Felder uh, game plan that he was able to pull off against Charles Oliveira and Charles Oliveira survived that first round came out in the second round landed that check left hook the issue with Michael Chandler is his body cross I love that he invests in the body but it's the exact same punch every single time he did it in his last fight too uh, against um, uh, against Dan Dan Hooker Dan Hooker that's right and as you're dropping your cross to the body of your opponent, as you head back, you have to tuck under and roll under the potential left hook that come back might come back as a counter. And he didn't. He just backed straight up and walked right into that left hook of Charles Oliveira. Charles Oliveira showed his diversity and attack, landing punches, knees, elbows in order to finish Michael Chandler. Again, something that we talked about in that Oliveira has so many weapons, whereas Chandler really only has his hands. And uh, a really good performance by Charles Oliveira. Uh, Well-deserved after, I think, something like 28 UFC fights. That's a record for the number of fights that it took a fighter to reach the UFC championship. But good on Oliveira, man. Uh, impressive stuff. I'm, I'm very curious to see the matchup between him and either McGregor or Dustin Poirier next. Yeah. I mean, 
listen, we're probably going to get Chandler Gagey also, which sounds like a lot of fun to me. Um, although I think I think Gagey probably takes that. Um, the listen, the thing about that was great about it was composure, will to win, resilience. They were all knocks against Char- uh, Charlie Olives uh, prior to this. People, including myself, looking at his wins pre-Ferguson and thinking that some of them were against lesser competition. And at the same time, acknowledging how much he's improved. But he got through in a title fight, major adversity. He was smart and strategic. And instead of finding a way out, he found a way to survive. And after that, it, it buoyed him up and it even, made, it even made him better. And he came out and finished the fight. And that was, it was a, tr- whatever happens if, when he fights Poirier or McGregor, God, I hope it's Poirier, but, um, he, you know, Charles Oliveira is a, is a champion and he fought like a champion. So it couldn't be happier for the young man. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a weird situation where once again, we get a UFC lightweight title decided and not linearly, right? Like you didn't have Conor McGregor losing the title to, uh, Khabib Nurmagomedov. You saw Khabib basically win the title against another non-champion in uh, Ally Quinta. Luckily, Khabib was able to get Connor later on and actually get that win over him and, and make clear that he was the better fighter. But this is another one of those cases where, I mean, look, we know Charles Oliveira is super dangerous. We know that he's much better than he used to be. We know that he is really skilled everywhere. But would he have beaten a Poirier? Would he have beaten uh, Khabib or McGregor? That's the question that I hope we're going to get the answer to sooner or later. But really good on him, man. And look, we, we've got to be honest about Michael Chandler. Um, he wins a couple and he loses one. He's not truly an elite fighter. He's just extremely dangerous, right? He's got uh, he's got almost that Derek Lewis superpower. He's got a couple more skills than Derek Lewis, granted, and he needs to if he's going to compete at lightweight, but he's almost got that Derek Lewis superpower where he lands clean. Most guys are going to be in trouble in his weight class, but he's not super durable. Derek Lewis actually is, right? He, he doesn't really have a whole lot of heart or recovery. I shouldn't maybe say heart because uh, it seems like he's out of it. it. It doesn't seem like he's quitting. Um, it just seems like he's not able to recover. Charles Oliveira was able to recover, and he showed heart. Michael Chandler wasn't really able to show that. Um, I, look, I, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I, I'm still not convinced that Michael Chandler is an elite lightweight, but we're going to see in the near future. He has not been able to put together more than... I mean, he puts together three or four wins and then he loses almost every time over the last several years since 2013. And that's at the Bellator level, right? He comes in and beats Dan Hooker. Good on him. Um, Second fight, he loses. Let's see how it goes from here. I I just think like there's a big difference between Michael Chandler and what he believes in him, what he believes himself to be and what he actually is. And I know that Dana White privilege will have us all believe that Michael Chandler is truly one of the best and truly elite in the sport, but he's promotable. I know that uh, Dana likes him and so he's going to put him in, into great situations for Michael Chandler. But I also think Michael Chandler is probably going to be uh, losing uh, just as many fights in the UFC as he wins, especially if he fights at the top level. Uh, I guess just a couple of quick mentions from UFC 262. Benil Darius dominated Ferguson. I think you and I expected that to happen. Caitlin Chukagian walked away with a super close decision over Rujo. Barboza, Shane Burgos, spectacular fight. You and I picked this one right. A lot of people thought that Burgos' pressure was going to uh, beat Barboza, but that wasn't the case, man. What were your thoughts on uh, some of these matchups? I mean, that was a really, really fun fight. I liked, I liked seeing Chukagian. Um, you know, not the most, not the most exciting fight, but I do, I do enjoy watching, you know, watching her compete. Uh, she kept the gate. Love Burgos. He seems like a great guy. But hits, I, he's just very, he's just very, very hittable. Yeah. 
And I, I think Barbosa is slightly more elusive, slightly uh, more durable, and he's got it. And all, he just has more weapons, you know. Like, so uh, you know, and I'm, I'm excited for Barbosa to have some success at 145. I hope Burgos wins his next fight. He's had a couple of tough losses. Yeah, he really has, man. I, I'm thinking the UFC will give him a winnable fight in his next matchup. Somebody outside of that top. 10 or 12 at least. Uh, and let's quickly talk about last week's UFC fight night, or I should say two weeks ago, uh, Font versus Garbrandt. Font showed up, man. Uh, a lot of people expected Garbrandt's chin not to uh, not to be there for him. I think Garbrandt refusing to really engage in more than one, one or two punch exchange is helping him, right? He basically leaned into a lot of those shots that knocked him out against TJ Dillashaw and, uh, and Pedro Munoz. And he's fix that and so like him not being on the front foot and him not moving forward into the shot is helping but Rob Font's jab alone basically won him this fight he's got one of the best jabs in the sport and and uh you know that's starting to be worth something saying that because we have a handful of fighters in the UFC that are really really excellent jabbers Rob Font is certainly among them and uh good on Cody for surviving in Sherwin Hart and really putting it all out there in the fifth round but Rob Font uh at this point clearly a top three or four guy at bantamweight yeah, and the thing that bummed me out about this fight a little bit, and I'm happy for Font, I like Font, is you think about Cody's fight against Dominic Cruz and the speed and the elusiveness. And, I mean, just one of the, one of the premier, like, wake-up call arrival performances in UFC history. No one had done anything like that to Dominic Cruz yep. in years and ever, really. You know, he lost he lost to Faber, you know, when he was a kid. Yeah. Um, and it's just, you're like, oh, my God, this guy's something special. He's like, you know, he's like Michael Jackson meets, like, this will be an old reference, like Joel Gray in, in, uh, in The Adventures of, of Remo Williams, where he's, like, dodging bullets. Right. And uh, it's, it's just between the COVID, between the defeats... You could see you could see Garbaran's will. His will didn't falter. He was trying to be strategic. He just he he wasn't as fast. He wasn't as crisp, and he wasn't as powerful um, as his competitor. And that's I didn't I didn't see him being matched in those areas uh, as quickly as he was. Obviously, T.J. Dillashaw was incredibly fast. He's a smaller guy. Um, it was it was rough. I don't know if I don't you know Font seems to think that that Cody belongs at 125. Um, he was very complimentary of him after the fight, but he's like, yeah, like he just felt he was much smaller than me in there. He should be down a weight class. Yeah, and, but and, I don't know how I feel about Cody against getting in there with Figueredo. I mean, look, Figueredo's a lot to ask for. Cody is one and four in his last five fights. He's not. You know, he's not a top, top, top level fighter. Um, was he ever? I mean, the Dominic Cruz win is the only. Well, Rafael Suntau was a good win. Don't get me wrong. But Suntau and Dominic Cruz are the only good wins, um, really quality wins of his career. Outside of that is Thomas Almeida, Augusto Mendez, Henry Briones, Marcus Brimage. These are not like at all mentionable fighters by any means, right? Thomas Almeida was once seen as a prospect. And I know he was Cody's, uh, Cody gave him his first loss, but Almeida is not a great fighter. Um, and, and what we're seeing, and we're seeing, and what we saw against Dominic Cruz is I, I think it helps Garbrandt that Cruz doesn't have power. Cruz, you know, uh, Garbrandt's chin is not that great. And it helps Garbrandt that his team really knew Cruz well, and they were able to mimic him and give him the exact combos that Cruz consistently throws. He was able to use that head movement. He hasn't really been that smart about his head movement, right? He he doesn't really fake or faint enough, and he doesn't convince you that he's that, that he's about to hit you 
And then he doesn't like he, he doesn't create those openings in the way that he should. I like the addition of his calf kick. Um, but I, I still think there's a lot in the defense of Cody that is an issue. And a lot of it is due to the lack of head movement, which again is what he used to beat Dominic Cruz. So on paper, it should be there. The other thing that I think we absolutely have to talk about on this card, uh, was Carla Esparza being an absolute buzzsaw, never thought that she would have the skill set um, and evolve enough uh, to put herself in play for another shot at the title after she was dominated by uh, Joanna Champion so many years ago. But she looked incredible. She really did, man. Uh, look, we knew that she always has the wrestling that really nobody in that division has at this point, especially with Tatiana Suarez now saying that she's going to come back to 125 instead of the 115-pound division. Carlos Barza is by far the best, most accomplished wrestler in that top 10 range, at least that I can gauge. We have this situation with Carlos Barza where she eked out some close competitive decisions against some pretty good fighters and Alexa Grasso, John DeRoba, Michelle Watterson, Marina Rodriguez. These are all like really respected fighters. They were all decisions, two split decisions and one majority decision in that bunch, right? And what happens with Carla is that she looks good for about a round and a half and then gets exhausted and her opponent takes over and that's why the decision could easily go either way. Usually that second round decides that Esparza loses the third round, wins the first. She walked in looking in incredible shape for this fight, Nick, and she performed like it. I think she realized that she was one fight away from that title shot, and she did all the strength and conditioning that she needed, combined with the skills that she already has, combined with this newfound aggression, man. Yang Jianan had, I mean, she just did not see that coming. She was taken down a couple of times in her prior few fights, but she was able to get back up. Esparza not only kept her down, but did serious damage. And it does seem like Esparza took advantage of this kind of loophole, the MMA rule system, where if you are landing shots on your opponent and they can't defend themselves, the referee has to stop it, even if they're not very strong shots at all. And from that crucifix position where essentially the person on bottom can't defend themselves at all their arm and their arm arms both arms are trapped by your opponent's body um carlos Esparza took advantage of it and finished there uh look i, I we talked about how as far if Esparza has a really good performance we both i believe uh actually we, we didn't get to pick on this fight i did favor Esparza because of her wrestling by a small margin i didn't expect her to dominate but Esparza, this version of her uh, against rose namayunas who she already has a win over the storyline is there right this is rose's opportunity to avenge a loss and if rose can get this win over Esparza, then she will have beaten every champion in ufc 115 pounds history so this would be a huge accomplishment and for Carlos Barzley if she can get back up that mountain be back at the top that would be huge I think it's a compelling matchup obviously Esparza is going to be the underdog but she did enough to earn herself that title shot in my opinion yeah they're both they're both really easy to root for yeah it was not the fight that we expected but it was you know you don't we don't often see straight just straight up bloodbath maulings in the, in the women's divisions uh, and this was, this was some this was some serious shit again against really, really against well, against the against the top you know a top eight or top five competitor. Yeah, I would imagine Carlos Parza inside the distance, especially by TKO, was probably an insane odds, something like plus eight hundred because the girl doesn't really finish opponents, she doesn't really finish fights. So really good on her. Looking forward to her. And here's what storyline I kind of picked up throughout this card, Nick, is fighters who have not uh, previously didn't have the strength and conditioning that they implemented and it made a huge difference for them. Carlos Barza came in in phenomenal shape, was able to confidently put the energy out there knowing that she wouldn't get exhausted. 
She got a finish for the first time in her career, earned herself a title shot. Jared Vandera, who, like, conditioning-wise, was out of this world against Justin Taffa, came in as the underdog, especially after his UFC debut. Nobody expected much from Vandera, but his striking output was out of this world. I don't know how this giant heavyweight was not exhausted at the end of that third round when he was doing the post-fight interview. He wasn't out of breath. That's rare for bantamweights, especially given the amount of output that uh, Vandera put out there. Super impressive. It just shows you, again, the value of strength and conditioning. You know who else, Nick? Court McGee came in there against Claudia Silva, who was like 5-1 and one in the UFC or 6-1 and one going into this bout. Court McGee, who's riding a kind of a losing streak, came in there looking in phenomenal shape for the first time in his career. He looked ripped, and he performed like it, even at his advanced age. It just shows you, again, the value of having a proper strength and conditioning system. It makes such a huge difference. And uh, these yeah, three well, fighters someone, particularly, I think, benefit. Yeah, someone needs to talk to, to Edmund Shabazian then. Motherfucking right, man. He's the uh, it's. It's uh, and I know Zabit's got some lung issue or something now, but like Shabazian, like Zabit is a he's a one round warrior and uh, he looked he looked terrific against Hermanson in that first round, and yeah. it all went downhill after that. I just I know he's young, um, but he's got he has to correct that because he clearly has great skills and he looks like he's in good shape. I don't I don't know. But the the difference between Edmund Shabazzian in a first round and in a second round is across, and you know we have a sample, and we now have a sample size of of a few fights. Yep. And uh, it's 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 just not good. Yeah, it really makes you wonder if he didn't finish the contender series fight, the Charlie Bird fight, the Jack Marshman fight, the Brad Tavares fight. If he didn't finish those opponents in the first round. What would have happened even against that level of competition? I think the Brad Tavares win, that head kick first round knockout for Edmund Shabazian was not great for his career because the UFC basically plunged him into the deep waters of 185 because he looked like a 22, 23-year-old contender at the time. And here's the thing. What we're seeing with fighters under Edmund Traverdian is that, and the same thing with Ronda Rousey, and it's the same thing with Edmund Shabazian, who is uh, managed by Ronda Rousey, is that one if they don't finish you early they will lose heart and everything will fall apart shortly after. And we saw that with uh, Ronda Rousey once she started facing actual like decent opposition, once the division kind of figured itself out a little bit. And we're seeing that in this matchup too, man. I'm, I'm thinking maybe a change of camp would be, would be a good recipe. I mean, they're dangerous early. They hit hard. Shabazian looks pretty technical early, and he paced himself more in this fight, but it certainly wasn't enough. I mean, at this point, I think I think even at 23, 24 years old, like you got to question the kid's heart. Like You get finished like that. You're not really trying to win anymore. You're literally turning your head away from your opponent in hopes that they'll stop hitting you or something. It's not a good sign. Uh, and then outside of that, uh, Bruno Silva, another big first-round uh, knockout win. Uh, David Dvorak w- with a beautiful first-round submission. Demir Ismagulov with an exciting uh, first bout. Uh, he's not a very exciting fighter, but undefeated in the UFC, 23-1 overall. Definitely some, uh, I think, wins worth mentioning. Norma Dumont picked up a close decision win over Felicia Spencer. Uh, so some good stuff on this last card, Nick, but let's take a break. Let's come back so that we can break down this upcoming Fight Night headlined by Rosenstrike and Sakai. Back on the MMA Geek Sea Level podcast, and Nick, we're going to break down UFC Fight Night 
Rosenstrike versus Sakai. Uh, it's an interesting one, Nick, because we have like Jarzinho Rosenstrike, who's extremely athletic and extremely fast, but throws almost nothing, just like stands there for long, 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 long periods of time, and then eventually tends to score a knockout out of nowhere. Whereas Augusto Sakai, who's not very athletic, who's not very fast, just is willing to put the pressure, put the numbers out on an opponent, even though he doesn't hit all that hard either. It's a it's an interesting style matchup, and I'm hoping it doesn't end up being boring. I, I'm hoping that Sakai isn't timid after his loss to Alistair Overeem, but it's interesting with both of these guys uh, not you know coming off of losses going into this matchup in the main event, even though there are other fights that could have been in the main event. Taburo Harris could have been in the main event, even though I know that Harris is coming off of uh, a loss. Uh, Baeza Ponzinibbio could have potentially been a main event. I, I think I think the choice of main event for this matchup is odd, but we're going to go with it, Nick. Uh, as everybody knows, we have a draft system. Nick and I each take turns picking fighters who are competing on the upcoming card at the end of Saturday night. Whichever of us has more points from having picked the more successful fighters ends up walking away with the win. As of right now, I am in the lead by six points, 53.5 points to Nick's 47.5. We're coming off of that UFC 262 where we drew Nick. We each scored three points on that one. Um, let me quickly look at which one of us has the first pick this time, Nick. I think you had the first pick last time you picked Benil Dariush. Does that sound right to you, Nikolai? Uh, it does. So for my first pick on this card, I'm going to pick in the Marching Tabura Walt Harris matchup. I'm going to take Marching Tabura to pick up the win uh, here. God damn it. That was my was first the, pick. Was that earlier yeah. first? Uh, yeah. Tabura, after going on a one and four run. He's racked up four straight wins against Sergei Spivak, Moxin Grishin, Ben Rothwell, Greg Hardy. These are like pretty good opponents, right? They don't, they're not terrible heavyweights. Uh, not, none of those guys are honestly terrible heavyweights. Uh, he's always had a good ground game, but recently he's been getting really comfortable with the striking, and his wrestling has improved quite a bit. He's been getting uh, takedowns against some pretty strong opponents. His, he's winning fights against good heavyweights who have exploitable holes in their games, which I think describes almost every heavyweight since he has enough craft at this point to take advantage. Uh, Harris likes to pressure early. He's very fast and powerful in the first few minutes. If he doesn't get the finish in the first round, not only is he going to be exhausted, but he's not going to have any heart left. So he's kind of ripe for the picking. So I like to Burr to uh, fight very carefully in the first round before taking over in the second round. Harris doesn't just slow down. Like, he gets exhausted. Like, he wants out of there. So the finish will be there for Tybura if he wants it. Uh, but Tybura was knocked out three times between 2018 and 2019. So a Harris KO in the first round is not out of the question. Uh, I, I would say if you're going to put Tybura in a parlay or two at minus 170, I think it's worth it. But also place a plus 500 bet on Harris in the first round. Um, because if Harris is going to win, it's going to be early. And that way you kind of hedge. And either way, you should walk away with a profit. What are your thoughts, Nick? Yeah, I just don't think well. Wells Harris, he has a, he has like a sloppy puncher's chance. He's just not, he's not very refined. He doesn't have a good gas tank. Seems like a nice guy. Tapura is for a heavyweight is a is a well rounded mixed martial artist. And unless he's just he's he's a step or two uh, in levels of competition ahead of where of what I think Walt Harris's ceiling is. Um, I know that Tapura was stopped by Sakai. I think that Sakai is a much better uh more technical uh striker than harris is so unless yeah he's got a harris has a puncher's chance and that's it i don't even think he has much of that 
Yeah, um, I mean, it, w- one quick thing about that uh, loss to Sakai. Sakai is not known for having power at all, and that was Sakai's one, uh, actually one of his two finishes. He did also finish Chase Sherman, but just not a great sign for Tiburus Chen that he was knocked out in well, the first round. By I Sakai. don't know. That that doesn't really bother me because Tiburus been in there with with other uh, with other heavy hitters. Um, sure. He did get knocked out. He got knocked out by Derek Lewis, but he's been in there with Arlovsky, Verdum, uh, Timothy Johnson, uh, all true. Rothwell, Hardy, like there. I'm not. It's. I don't. It's like. Listen, Walt Harris is not Francis Ngannou, um, so I think he should. Uh, yes, he's, there's a chance, but I think he should be okay. Uh, my first pick is actually going to be an underdog pick, as I think that got? the. Uh, I think the odds in this fight are really messed up. I'm going to pick Eler Latifi to defeat uh, Tanner Bozer. Um, I just I look at Latifi's losses at both light heavyweight and heavyweight, and they are against elite competition. And this is a guy, an un, you know, a short guy, an undersized guy who went the distance with Derek Lewis. Um, he's a really strong wrestler. He's got power. He's got good ground and pound. Um, he's a little small height, you know, he's a little small for heavyweight, but I just, I, I, I don't know. I'm having trouble seeing why Tanner Bozer is, is a one is a minus minus one ninety favorite, uh, in this fight against a guy who's been, uh, fighting elite competition in the, uh, for the last eight years, uh, across two, across two weight classes. Yeah, I, I do hear where you're coming from. I think part of it is that Latifi's on a three-fight losing streak, but he is coming off look of at a the, fight. Look at the names. Look at those yeah, names. No, doubt. Uh, no I, I definitely agree. He's coming off of a fight against Derek Lewis, which he arguably won, and Derek Lewis is now perceived to be the number one contender at heavyweight on a four-fight winning and streak. The, yeah, and the other lo- his, losses, his last four losses are to Ryan Bader, Corey Anderson, Vulcan Ojdemir, and Derek yeah. Lewis. Yeah, like and, bef- and, bef- and wait, wait, and you, you before that, his previous two losses going back ten years are to Jan Blachowicz and Gegard Mousasi. Yep. This guy has only fought contenders and champions. It's true. There's a big drop off. I would say outside of that, Ovin St. Perwin, There's a big drop off between the guys he lost to and the guys he's won over. Tyson Pedro, Gian Vellante, Sean O'Connell, Hans Stringer, Chris Dempsey, like. You probably don't even know the names of some of these guys because they washed out of the UFC pretty quickly. So it, it's a weird situation. Like, look, Tanner Bowser is a pretty good heavyweight. He's pretty fast for heavyweight, but he's probably going to be the the like weaker man here. Even though Latifi's only five ten and Bowser is in that six foot range, he's going to be the taller guy. He's going to be the arguably faster guy, better striker. I, I tend to think that Bowser's footwork might be enough to keep him out of the clinch. I, I definitely hear where you're coming from, and that Latifi can either grab him in the clinch and hold him there, or he can get takedown but I'm hoping that Bozer's footwork wins out here. I wouldn't be surprised if Latifi takes it, and I know you're doing this for the points. Uh, and look, there, there's some smarts that are picking Iler Latifi in this one, so I definitely hear where you're coming from. I think it's a good underdog pick for you, buddy. And uh, for the listeners, if you pick an underdog who is um, who is one plus 150 or above, you get two points instead of just one if he ends up coming through for you and getting the win. Now, I know that... Um, let me see. Latifi's plus 160, plus 165, so he definitely falls into that category. Nice pick, Nikolai. My next pick is going to be in the um, Montana De La Rosa, Ariane Lipsky matchup. Uh, Ariane Lipsky is super dangerous standing, right? She's got heavy hands. She's got really good Muay Thai, and she's caught the occasional armbar off of her back, but she gets taken down at will, and Montana De La Rosa is a really good wrestler. More importantly, she has a good top 
a position ground game, and I think she'll be able to stay out of danger there. So I think as long as she grounds Arian Lipsky, she should stay out of danger, and I think she should uh, land a pretty clear-cut decision here in this matchup. Although I, I realize there's danger on the ground and on the feet against Lipsky. I still like Montana Del Rosa on this one. How many times are you going to pick Montana De La Rosa and, and lose? I pick against her all the time and win, and you continue to support her. She, she, I think Lipsky's a more tenacious fighter. I think Lipsky has more heart. I think Montana De La Rosa gets lost in there. I do think that there's a, a raw skill and size advantage um, that De La Rosa has, so I was really hoping that you were going to pick this one because I don't want any part of it. Um, if you put a gun to my if you put a gun to my head, I guess I say Montana De La Rosa. But like, wait, wait, wait! Not, After I, everything you just said, you're well, Lipsky. Montana I mean, De La Rosa? no, I'm not. I, it's just she's. It's just like this is the like Lipsky's had the the almost no almost no success at this level. Um, so I won't be surprised if. No, fuck it. I'll take. I'll take. I mean, this isn't going to affect my, go. score, my score anyway. But yeah, I'm going to take Lipsky because I don't think Montana De La Rosa knows how to win in the UFC. I mean, to to be fair, uh, Montana De La Rosa's win losses are to Viviana Rujo, Andrea Lee, and former 125 pound champ Nico Montano on the Ultimate Fighter. Cynthia Calvillo, Mackenzie Dern earlier in her career. It takes that level of opponent to beat her. She beats the Mar- Mara Barellas, right? She beats the Rachel Ostovichs, the Christina Marks. I feel like Arian Lipsky's closer to that level than I, the kind I, you're, of opponent you're, that beats you're probably you're, you're probably right, but it's I still won't be surprised if she finds a way to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. But you're probably right. I like I it, Nick. Ha- I just don't have a lot of faith in her. That's two disagreements in the first three fights. That's what I'm talking about, buddy. What's your next pick? Um. Oh, this is one that I can't believe we didn't pick sooner because there was a change. Um, I'm going to pick, uh, listen, what was going to be a difficult pick over Manon Fioro against Mariana Moroz. Moroz fell out of that fight. And there's a late, uh, a late replacement. Um, oh my God! I've got to go to Tabat Ricci is her name. Tabitha Ricci. Uh, Tabitha is that it? Tab yeah. Tabitha Ricci, uh, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu fighter, um, stepping in to make her debut. She hasn't uh, in LFA. I don't see any like. Uh, any competitors of note? I see lots of fights against people who are two and zero, oh, two and three, that sort of thing. Um, going up against, even though she's only, um, <clears throat> sorry, I'm going, I'm zooping through the topology. People, you'll have to, you'll have to you'll bear with me. Like Please th- give th- us some th- names th- of people we've never heard of. <laughs> the thirty, the thirty-one year old striker um, who had a sick, sick uh, head kick uh, victory over Victoria Leonardo. Um, and is, yeah, just, uh, I, I think a highly, she's not, you know, it's hard to call her a prospect. She's 31, but highly, highly touted striking, um, out of France. And I think she's going to be the, I think she's the massive favorite. I think she'll probably end, end the betting, uh, being the largest favorite on the card. So I'm going to go with, uh, with Fiero over the, the relatively unknown debuting, uh, Tabitha Ricci. Nick, uh, Manan Fioro, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, is a minus 460 favorite. She's a huge favorite in this matchup. And when you see Manon's, uh UFC debut, you see why. She's extremely explosive, very fast, super, super sharp striking. 
But Tabitha Ricci doesn't suck, man. Like, if you see footage on her, she's just a suffocating wrestler grappler, and she, like, catches some fancy submissions. Granted, it's against lower-level competition. She's like a girl who really believes in herself. She's got a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. I believe she's got a Judo... uh, I don't know if it's a black belt or just a Judo background, but she's pretty legit in her own right. Got a bunch of grappling uh, bouts on the record. Um, I, I see this as way closer than the outs suggest. I definitely wouldn't touch this uh, uh, on the betting line at minus 460 is insane. It's a dog or pass fight for me as far as the betting line. But I, I do very, very slightly agree with you on the pick. I, I just feel like the, the odds being this lopsided are insane. Tabitha did take this fight on super short notice, but she fought just a couple of weeks ago in the middle of May and, and picked up a win. Um, if I remember correctly, I don't think she took a whole lot of damage in that matchup. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely less confident than you are in this one, but I do give the edge to uh, Mano Fiore. Um, she got a second round TKO uh, against Shauna Onsbury, who granted was two and three going into that bout. Not very high level, so I, I definitely hear you there. Level of competition is a big difference. My next pick is going to be in the Sean Woodson Yusuf Zalal matchup. I like Yusuf Zalal a lot. He's kind of a jack-of-all-trades and looks particularly smooth on the feet. But when he faces an opponent that has a significant athleticism or size advantage, he struggles. There's a good chance that Ilya Teporia and Sungwoo Choi are top 10 quality fighters, though. So there isn't much shame in those losses. Woodson is a solid high output striker. He won his contender series and UFC debuts, but got caught by Julian Arosa after busting him up early. He has decent takedown defense and a good get-up game that allows for him to keep it standing, but uh, he could have a weakness on the ground game if that loss to Arosa is to be taken with uh, more than a grain of salt. I think Woodson's size advantage and the fact that Zalal doesn't change course much in a fight unless he's dominating. Like, Zalal has a good ground game, but he rarely goes for serious takedown attempts unless he's already dominating, dominating an opponent's standing. He's not really much of a finisher, and that doesn't that doesn't help him either, right? If Woodson picks up the first two rounds, can Zalal finish in the third? It doesn't seem like it. Um, so I like Woodson to score the first two rounds and win a decision here. Yeah, it's um, Zalal, you know, he's one of those guys who I wished was taking a bit of a break. He fought, He's fought a lot in the last year, and I get that it's on the job training. Um, you know, he looks great against weaker competition where in a striking battle, um, he's not very good off of his back. He's not great at getting up. Um, and the, the real danger here is, is Woodson's range. Um, you know, kicking range for Zalal, maybe punching range for, is going to be punching range for Woodson. Um, so I feel like the size discrepancy is the big deal here. And Zalal just, his last couple of fights, he's just looked... I think this. I think this will be interesting, but I. I just. I. I, I feel like Zalal should be taking. Uh, you know, he's one of those guys who I'd like to see go away for eleven months and come back um, with a more refined game, uh, maybe in a lower weight class. I don't know, uh, but um, I'm picking Woodson as well. I think with Zalal, it's uh, he needs to really taper up his strength and conditioning. He has good cardio, but his strength is not really there. His explosiveness, his power is not really, really there. And on top of that, his mindset of like, he, he would rather stay safe than take a little more risk in order to possibly finish an opponent. And that takes away the factor of being dangerous. Um, again, so Lal's two losses are two really, really good opposition guys that could be top five in the next year. So there's a good chance that Zalal is still a really, really good fighter who can beat Woodson. I, I'm just not confident in that. Uh, what's yeah. your next pick, buddy? Uh, I'm going to pick the main event. I'm going to pick Drazenio Rosenstrike uh, over Sakai. Um, I think this is going to largely... This is going to play out similarly to the Overeem fight. Um, Rosenstreich, Rosenstreich has, has shown, and this is partially because of his output, that he um, 
And we, we know a couple we know a couple of things about him. He is he is I think quite durable. I, you can't say that getting knocked that getting knocked out by Engano means anything because Engano not can knock out anyone. Um, yeah. But we haven't really seen him hurt uh, outside of that. And um, you know Sakai is pretty active and has volume uh, for the for the weight class, but that also means ample opportunities for Rosenstrike to counter. And as yep. as Sakai slows down, I just think over time Rosenstrike's going to find that chin, and I have no doubt that that Rosenstrike uh, can drop him and end it with ground strikes. Yeah, I, I would not be surprised if that's the case. Rosenstrike is known for his low output. He lands a little bit over three strikes per minute. Sakai is busier and throws over five strikes per minute. That's like a significant difference. That's like a 66% more, you know, more strikes landed per minute uh, by Sakai than by Rosenstrike. They're occasionally as accurate. I mean, uh, so on paper, so it favors Sakai, like, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, well, right. But Ro- right. Rosenstrike wins fights, not rounds. He does not. He hasn't won very yes, many rounds. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. But that was my next point. Sakai doesn't have knockout power, and Rosenstrike has it in spades. Plus, Rosenstrike works best on the counter, and Sakai will give him plenty to counter, like you said. Sakai looked gassed in the one five-round fight he's had so far against Overeem. Rosenstrike has gone five rounds a couple of times, and he has had several training camps for a 25-minute contest that he finished before that point, right? There's a caveat to that, though. Overeem landed about a dozen body shots on Sakai before Sakai was really tired like late in that third round. Rosenstrike has good low kicks, but doesn't really target the body almost ever. Uh, Sakai trains at relatively small gym in Brazil, where his main training partner is 185-pound Wellington Terman. Rosenstrike trains at one of the best and biggest gyms in the world at American Top Team. Given Rosenstrike's advantages in all those fronts, um, I, I have to pick him to either tag Sakai early or start to take over in the fourth round as Sakai gets winded after a competitive 15 minutes. But Sakai's chin is solid, and if he doesn't get tired without taking a boatload of body shots. I can see him outworking Rosenstrike over five rounds in a more entertaining fight than the Rosenstrike's loss to Cyril Gan. We've seen that Rosenstrike, like, if you stay out of punching range, he will do nothing. If you don't give him something very easy to counter, he will do nothing. And there's a chance that Sakai's chin is good enough to take a few shots from the guy. Sakai, you know, he hasn't been finished by his chin shutting off. He's been finished by craftier opponents. And I don't know that Rosenstrike is that crafty yet. But I, look, I do with, agree with you on the pick. This was just lower on my list because one guy's way, way, way busier. And Rosenstrike is willing to not pull the trigger for 25 minutes at times, as we saw against Overeem uh, and, and in his last fight um, uh, against... Uh, against Cyril Gaon. So, you know, it's hard to be confident in Rosenstrike. My next pick is going to be in the Jordan Levitt-Claudio Puelos matchup. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that that Puelos name right. Uh, Claudio is basically a submission artist who does almost nothing else well. He consistently pulls guards since his wrestling's not very good. He's 2-1 and one in the UFC, but those wins are over two guys who washed out of the UFC pretty quickly. Uh, Levitt is not athletic or well-rounded either, but he's a better, more confident grappler than Puelas, so I'm picking him. I, I just feel like his momentum, the fact that he's been competing regularly lately, um, gives him the edge here against the guy who pulls guard like six times a fight. It's not going to be a smart idea to pull guard against uh, Levitt. Yeah, so you're picking, I'm picking Levitt also. Um, looking at the next round of fights, I feel like um, I feel like the UFC really likes Makwan Amrakhani, uh, the ha- the handsome Mister Finland, and I think that they're giving him a, a step down in competition um, following the sh- the shellacking uh, he received at the hands of oh my god I'm blanking, 
he just who fought him, uh, who tuned him up edson barbosa uh, edson yeah barbosa he, and, so uh, that was Shane that was a, yeah that was those were two he lost b- both both of those fights um so he's not you know he's not quite at that level but he's still um you know i think he's still a, a, a pretty darn good fighter um and he's going up against uh the jawayan kamuela uh kamuela uh kirk um i th- you know i think this is a um, I think this is a pretty winnable fight for for Mr. Finland here, and that they want to keep him, uh, you know, keep him uh, with as many with as many wins as possible. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because Maquan every time he fights somebody that like doesn't really belong in the UFC, Danny Henry, Chris Fishgold, Jason Knight at that point in his career, Mike Wilkinson, he beats them right like he he kind of rolls right through them and when he fights anybody in that top 15 range Shane Burgos Arnold Allen and Edson Barboza he gets kind of shellacked um well, look split, I, I, split, de- split decision against Arnold Allen uh yeah back in 2017 I wouldn't mind rewatching that fight I wonder if that really should have been a split decision but uh yeah it, it on paper was a competitive fight but Khabib had a competitive fight leading up to uh his 29-0 record against uh against uh Gleason Tebow too like it, it doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot about Arnold, Arnold Allen or Armirkani's potential uh Armirkani trains at SBJ Ireland which is in my opinion about as bad a gym with a name as it gets in the sport um I I'm gonna edge slightly slightly toward Armirkani but here's the thing about Kamuela Kirk really aggressive forward moving striker nasty knees nasty right hand he will put your back against that fence and he fought a couple weeks ago even though he took this fight on short notice so i can definitely see him coming in in shape and outworking marmarkani after he survives the first round you know blitz from marmarkani who has about a five or six minutes worth of a gas tank so i you know given the odds i probably would have picked the underdog if given the chance here given our uh, given our uh, two-point advantage that you get for picking a correct underdog but I guess I'll pick Armrick Connie since uh, since I don't have a dog in the fight since you're the one who made this pick. Um, I my next pick is going to be in the Muslim Salikov versus Francisco Trinaldo matchup. I like Trinaldo a lot, but he's old and moving up to welterweight from 155. Plus, he was hurt in his last matchup against the UFC debuting fighter pretty badly. He was almost finished early before he kind of took over and got the finish. I could see the right kind of pressure working against Salikov, but Salikov can hurt just about anyone on the feet, and he should be the bigger man in this matchup. So I'm taking him to uh, to do some damage to the aging veteran. By the way, for Same. the record, I-, I like Trinaldo a lot, and I'll be rooting for him. Yeah, I like I like both of these guys, but I see... I see a lot of uh, early fight sp- uh, spinning back kicks to the uh, to the solar plexus, uh, really getting under Trinaldo's skin. Um, yeah, and and again, the size difference is what makes me question whether Trinaldo can use that pressure to actually get takedowns. Next fight up, yeah, I'm going to go with the favorite uh, Roman uh, Dolids, who um, you know just had a pretty uh, entertaining. Uh, loss uh, to to Trevin Giles, um, very very uh, fun back and forth fight. Uh, he's fighting Loriano Strapoli, who I think is going to have probably have the advantage in gas tank, but not uh, not in power and probably not in athleticism. Uh, so I think this is the I think this is the level of fighter that that Roman's going to going to be able to muscle for three rounds, even if it's, even if it gets a little dicey, uh, late in the fight when his, when, you know, the very muscled, 
the merry muscled fighter has all the lactic uh, all the lactic buildup. But I'll continue on my role of picking Georgian fighters, even though he let me down last time I picked him. Yeah, I mean, the Leeds had a really close fight in his last matchup. Argument could be made that he deserved that win. Um, here's the thing. The Leeds is like a good grappler, and he's been going more for that lately. He's not super fast on the feet, but he's pretty dangerous there. Um, Sarpoli is not like very dangerous. He doesn't hit very hard, right? Two and two in the UFC, but his losses are to Muslim Salikov and Tim Means, who are really good fighters. Tim Means' fight could have gone either way. He's aggressive, kind of high-paced striker with decent fundamentals, good footwork. Um not very fast, but has good timing, and his aggression kind of makes up for it. Usually pops up quickly after getting taken down, and that's part of the key. I think I'm going to give a slight edge to Staropoli. He's, I believe, the slight underdog in this one, and I have, you know, I have nothing to lose by by picking the underdog. Um, I just feel like Staropoli's output will be way higher than the leads, and even though the leads can land the bigger shots, which might earn him the decision, I think this is going to the scorecards, and I think Staropoli does a good job of getting back up to his feet. Uh, I could definitely see the leads like banking two rounds by staying on top, but he has low fight. IQ at times like he he in that second round clearly lost that second round because he went for a footlock after getting top position and like as he was holding on to his opponent's ankle he just got clocked in the face like 10 or 12 times really hard it's just like bad decisions like that giving up top position when you don't need to I'm gonna favor uh, Staropoli ever so slightly who's got a higher level kind of a UFC opponents and and went pretty close with Tim Means in the last bout there I know the leads is the bigger harder hitting guy uh, but this one could go either way. My next pick is going to be. Wait, hang hang um, on one second. I uh-huh. just want to make. Yep. I want to. I'm going to make an observation here about about the leads. But I need to look up. Um, okay, the the leads is the Georgian Rafael Natal. Um, I could see that, but Natal was. He has like zero athleticism, and he wasn't really big. I've actually sparred Natal at uh, at Henzo's. Um, he's not very athletic. He's not very fast. He's not very big. He doesn't. I mean, he did kind of hit hardish, I guess, and he had good jiu-jitsu. Yeah, I guess I could see it. I just feel like, uh, uh, the, like the, one of the differences is that Roman is like stupid confident, like he's kind of douchey confident, and the fact that he's just a stronger, like like more powerful, athletic guy. But I could kind of see it. I kind of, I kind of miss that guy. Thanks for bringing him up, Nikolai. Yeah, um, I en- yeah, I enjoyed him. Yeah, I, I was rooting for him a lot of the time in the UFC as well. And and I got to spar him kind of late in his UFC career. Uh, but even before I met him, I, I was rooting for him. So I'm going to pick uh, – look, there's a lot of reason to have question marks about this fighter. I'm going to pick Tom Breeze to beat Antonio Arroyo mainly because – I, there's no crowd here, so I think Tom Breeze mentally uh, won't, you know, he's had anxiety attacks right before fights. He got dominated in his last fight. He kind of lost hard as soon as he got taken down. It's not a good sign, but Antonio Arroyo doesn't really have a ground game to speak of. He's not really going to go for takedowns. Uh, Breeze, you know, both these guys are strikers. This should be an exciting fight on paper. I'm going to favor Breeze because he's got higher level training overall, higher level competition in his past. Um, but, you know, it's, it's hard to trust in Breeze given his kind of mental state in general. So there's no there's no fans at this one. Uh, I believe this is at uh, in Vegas Apex, at the uh, USA Apex. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right, we've got what do we got? Two three fights, fights left, left, Nick. Three. Oh, you you see three? Why do I only? Oh, I see. I see yep, I see. I see Todorovic, uh, Rodriguez, Jones, and Patrick, and then uh, the one that's uh, a potential fight of the night. This is going to be a barn burner, and I'm I'm going to pick it right now. Uh, I'm going to pick Miguel Baeza to defeat Santiago Ponzinibbio. I think this is going to be an awesome, uh, an awesome fight. It's it's close right now. Baeza is the favorite at minus 125. I think this will get probably pr- pretty close to even money. 
Um, you know, Baez is un- he's he's undefeated. He's undefeated. He's ex- he's exciting. He's got pop. And Ponzinibbio, after that long layoff, came back and did not look good, and got slept, um, yeah. which not which none of us were expecting. Um, you know, a guy who was able to just you know not many people can walk in and slaughter Neil Magny, and and he did just that. Um, but we're talking. There's just a lot more question marks right now with with, with Ponzinibbio. This could be a big statement for him. But I've got to go. I've got to go with with the undefeated, uh, the undefeated prospect uh, who's who's currently surging. Yeah, he's a serious prospect uh, fighting out of MMA Masters, three and zero in the UFC, two knockouts and one submission over like some you know some decent opposition considering how early he is in his UFC career. He kind of fights it, like yeah, a southpaw. All finishes, all finishes. Yeah, that's he did right. Get, that's he did right. get he did get hurt by Matt Brown, but Matt Brown's he hurt did. a lot of people. And you know, that's I mean, really but, what concerns me, Nick, about this matchup, is that Matt yeah, Brown I mean, backed him up to the fence like Ponzinibbio likes to do. And with Baez's back to the fence, he landed a right hand and dropped him, badly hurt him at least once in the first round of their fight. And that's really where the concern comes in. The thing is that Ponzinibbio, as much as he's a really good pressure fighter, he may have missed his prime with a three-year layoff as he was on a seven-fight win streak leading up to it. Wins over Court McGee, Norton Taleb, Gunnar Nelson, Mike Perry, Neil Magny, three of those by knockout. Like, that's super impressive, right? Like, not top five level competition, but Neil Magny's not far off that top five. But if he's at his best and his chin is not a liability, he has the pressure and power to finish the prospect here. I like Baez's momentum here, though. He can be hurt by a pressure power puncher, but based on the fact that Ponzinibbio is coming off a knockout loss just a few months ago, I like Baez's chances at recovering over Ponzinibbio's. This is another American top team versus MMA Masters matchup, and it's always interesting when two of the big South Florida teams go at it. Um, here's the thing. Ponzinibbio, if he like he, he has a really good jab, and that's another he's another guy who has a solid jab in this weight division. The double jab cross always works for him, always hurts his opponents. I could definitely see it working against Baeza, but given how Ponzinibbio looked, given that he was knocked out about four months ago, and Baeza hits really hard with every limb, including his hands, uh, the fact that Baeza is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, and maybe not an elite one, but a pretty good one, I'm going to go with Baeza. But I again, the, the style matchup on paper is tailored toward Ponzinibbio. If Ponzinibbio is not past his prime, if he is himself... He should do well here. Uh, and and so, you know, this is one that's hard to pick, and there's a reason that's one of our last three picks on this card. Um, so I, I am there with you on the pick, but, it, you know, obviously yeah, an exciting also, fight that I'm very much looking forward to. Yeah, and I would say that it's – this is the – I mean, this is the one that the, that the MMA geeks are going to have the biggest fight boner over on the card. Yeah, I, I would say – yeah. I would say this is one of the really good fights. I would say uh, Fioro versus Tabitha Ricci is another good fight on the card. Woodson Zalal is going to be exciting as hell. Um, I and, and yeah, this fight definitely, definitely, absolutely up there. Um, Dusko Todorovic, Gregory Rodriguez should be fun too, one way or the other. And that's going to be one of our next two picks. I'm actually going to make a pick in the Alan Patrick Mason Jones fight. I honestly forgot about the fight. It was at the bottom of my list by accident. It should have been higher up. I'm not sure why we didn't pick it until now. Mason Jones showed plenty of heart in his last fight, plenty of grit. Uh, he lost to Mike Davis, who like is legitimately kind of a beast of a man really hard to to handle for most guys, especially uh, in their UFC debuts. So uh, I like Mason Jones over Alan Patrick, who's got pretty good wrestling, okay jiu-jitsu, but hasn't really done anything else. He's up there in age. He's been on a bit of a losing streak, on a, on a rough patch. Uh, I, I think Mason Jones has, like, he can be taken down, and that's concerning, but I don't expect Patrick to do much with it. I think Mason Jones does enough damage with his ferocious striking to uh, to either finish Patrick or make it a clear-cut decision. Yeah, I'm with you. 
I'm with you on that one also. I should have, I wonder if I should have picked this earlier myself. Um, I should have done more research on Jones and this leaves me with a not very fun, uh, last fight to pick. Oh, it's a fun uh, fight. It's just not, it's just not a, uh, not an easy not one my, to pick. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not really my kind of, my kind of fight, but I'm going to go, um, you know, not, not so much his last fight, but off of, uh, his victory against Daquan, uh, Daquan Townsend. Um, I like, oh man, this one's, you know, this one's tough. Um, but I like uh, the guy who's been there before, Dusko Todorovic, um, to defeat uh, Gre- to defeat Gregory Rodriguez. Um, I just I think having I think having been in there before, I think with merciless, uh, just like strength and, and ground and pound. Although Rodriguez also looks really strong, uh, I I th- my instinct here just tells me that of the of the two products pro- uh, prospects, uh, Todorovic. Um, it's a guy with a, a slightly higher upside. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a tricky one because Dusko just like pressures forward, just keeps hitting his opponents until his opponent doesn't want any more of it. Um, super aggressive, right? But Gregory Rodriguez, not nearly as aggressive, but man, he hits somebody and they drop. And Dusko's coming off of the first loss of his UFC, uh, of his MMA career uh, to Paniele Soriano, who like hits really hard, good wrestler. Um, Gregory might just tag him here, man. Like, especially with Todorovic coming off of that loss just a few months ago. But Todorovic, even though he was hurt multiple times, never gave in, never stopped trying. The referee had to stop it with Todorovic going for a takedown after having been dropped. So, you know, Todorovic could very well just make it through the first round and take over, put the pressure on Gregory. So I'm there with you on the pick. It's just, you know, harder for me to commit to him given, given his lack of defense and the fact that he can be tagged pretty hard. Uh, you know, like his wins so far aren't against very good competition. And, you know, the one good opponent that he's had, he lost to pretty badly in the first round. So hard to be confident. But I am there with you on the pick overall. Uh, Nick, the we did it. The la- you know, the last pick. Yeah. No, absolutely no question about it. We I may, we I may flip-flop on that one, to be honest. I would, dude, I would not blame you one bit. There's a couple of fights on here that, that in my opinion, could go either way. Quickly going to run through our picks. My first pick was Marching Tabura over Walt Harris. Second, I took Montana Del Rosa to beat Arian Lipsky. Third pick was Sean Woodson over Yusuf Zalal. Fourth, I took Jordan Levitt over Claudio Puelas. Uh, my fifth pick was Muslim Selikov to beat Francisco Trinaldi. Sixth, uh, Trinaldo, excuse me. Sixth, I took Tom Brees to pick Antonio Arroyo. And my last pick was Mason Jones over Alain Patrick. Your first pick was Iller Latifi over Tanner Bozer. Second, you took Manon Feore over Tabitha Ricci. Your third pick was Jarzino Rosenstruck over Augusto Sakai, the main event. Fourth, you took uh, Amer- Maquan Americani over Camuela Kirk. Your fifth pick was Roman Delitz to beat Loriano Sarapoli. And your sixth pick was uh, Miguel Baez over Santiago Ponzinibbio before, obviously, that Dusko Todorovic pick over Gregory uh, Rodriguez. Nick, I, uh, I I feel like I have a slight edge in the picks just based on looking at this, but I felt that way before, and you've done well. So we're going to see how this one works out, man. I like that you picked that underdog pick early. I think that was a good underdog pick to make to potentially benefit with two points. That might just make all the difference in this one, buddy. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I feel, you know, I, overall I feel okay about my picks. Yeah, I, I think you should. Although I will say, despite the odds on some of these fights, like a lot of these fights could easily go either way. Uh, next week, Nick, we've got uh, June 12th, 
UFC, uh, what is it? UFC 263, Israel Adesanya versus Marvin Vittori in the main event, a rematch of a close matchup earlier in their careers. Davidson Figueredo versus Brendan Moreno, another rematch of another competitive matchup recently. Leon Edwards, Nate Diaz, uh, interesting name versus kind of hot prospect matchup. Damian Maya, Bilal Muhammad, which is interesting to me. Uh, Paul what? Craig versus Jamal Hill. There's yeah. been a lot of trash talk in this one. Uh, one thing I think we need to note, on I think yeah. this is super important, and it's it's very interesting. Um, so obviously Adesanya Vittori is a five-rounder. It's a championship fight, and... What's you know what's cool is that um, I think it's the first time an Italian is is headlining a UFC pay per view, but that's you know my own my own personal ethnic pride there. I think you're right. And then uh, Fig- Figueredo Moreno is a five rounder, but non title fight Leon Edwards and Nate Diaz is also scheduled to be a five round fight. I can't think of another time they've done that on an undercard um, for a non title fight. Nick, the twenty one and twelve Nate Diaz requested it. And he gets what he wants sometimes. I'm, yeah, I'm, it's, it's cool. I'm glad. I, I think it's, um, I'm, more, I'm more interested in it that way. It's just kind of a surprise. I'm, uh, I'm actually very interested in co-main events, period, whether they're title fights or not, at least of pay-per-views being five-round fights. And to be honest with you, like, I would be very open to any top, like any fight involving two top 10 fighters just automatically being a five rounder. Like I would be very happy with that. I think that it makes a big difference when a guy like Zabit Magomed Sharipov can go for about, you know, almost two rounds really hard and then gets exhausted. And he got several wins that he wouldn't have had had he fought five rounders. Um, and, and I know now we might be talking about his retirement because of, you know, durability and health issues or, or, or whatever it is. But, you know, just like it makes a difference, especially with top fights, top contenders. That five round fight could make all the difference where you have uh, the guy that loses a three round fight dominating the last three rounds potentially. Right. Um, by the way, also on this card, we have Drew Dober, Brad Riddell, phenomenal fight rematch between That's Eric Anders and Darren yeah. Stewart. Super um, exciting stuff. That's right. Uh, Lauren Murphy versus Joanne Calderwood, a tough fight at 125. I'm hoping Lauren Murphy can come through here. I know this is a close fight on paper, but I'm hoping Murphy can come through here and, and earn that this, title shot because with four or five fights. I mean, uh-huh. This card's freaking bonkers. Like, I'm it looking really at stuff. I'm like, I'm like Alexis Davis, Penny, Kianzad. We've got Chase Hooper's coming back, or, you know, maybe a little sooner than I'd like to see, but... Chase yeah, Hooper I don't know. Against, Chase against Hooper's Steven worth Peterson. mentioning, but sure. Yeah, I we've guess. got we've got Matt. We've I, I think so. He's like he's an exciting like twenty. He's like you know he's he's the he's the the zenial Dustin Hazelit. Um, that is true. Uh, we've just got, quick, uh, Mofsar Evloa versus Hakim Duwadu, two super prospects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interested in that fight. Matt Frivola. Uh, Matt Frivola's a fun fighter. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm into it. Jake Collier, who had a good performance against uh, uh, Gian Vellante, coming back against Carlos Philippe. Definitely some some interesting stuff on the horizon here. I think overall just a really solid, solid card, and both for yeah. hardcore fans and, and maybe a little bit of a taste like with guys like Israel Adesanya and Nate Diaz for the casuals. Like It's got a little bit of everything for everyone. We've Dave. got prospects like Jamal Hill on this yes. one. Um, you know, contenders like Leon Edwards getting a breakout fight, at least as far as name value. Like, I don't top, love the top fight, to, to be bottom. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. But but top to bottom, this is an, this is booked to be an action first card. I mean, they can say that all the time, but I look down and the, there are a lot of a lot of people who like press the fight. A lot of kickboxers, a lot of aggressive fighters uh, yeah. in these matchups. 
definitely plenty to look forward to, plenty to be excited about, Nick. I'm looking forward to getting the results of this one to see not only who wins on Saturday night. Uh, by the way, prelims start at 4 p.m. Be on the lookout, everybody. Uh, you're going to want to start this card sooner, and I always appreciate a UFC card that I can kind of finish by 10 or 11 p.m. I definitely appreciate uh, having the later evening to myself on Saturdays, or at least to me and my wife. Uh, Nikolai, a lot to look forward to. I look forward to figuring out the result of this for our competition, the result of this as far as the landscape of the MMA scene, and uh, and seeing if you can if you can close the gap a little bit, Nick, if you can get even closer to my, uh, with my current six point advantage. Well, we'll see. I tend to be a second half, uh, second half fighter, but I feel I feel like I made some informed choices this weekend, this upcoming weekend. We'll see what happens. I am I pissed that you, you got to Tabura Harris before I did, and I'm not convinced that you deserve to have first pick, but whatever. Um, we sh- I would like to go back and listen, and uh, I'll get back to you on that. Well, if, if you, you want first pick, Nick, you want that one, I will take no, one of yours. No, 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 no. <laughs> I just want it, I want it to be. It's long, I just want it to be accurate with whatever the previous show was. Anyway, my friend, 